Depending on what kind of morning you had, my hope is that by this point in the service, your heart rate has gone down a little bit. Maybe you had to schlep a couple of kids here this morning. Maybe your ride fell through. Maybe you just had to wake up about three hours earlier than you wanted to wake up. Whatever your morning was like, please know that we are so glad that you are here. God is glad that you are here. And the people who are sitting around you are also really glad that you're here and that you came back. I'm looking at those people who I called on last week who came back to church. I promise you can rest assured I will not be doing that this day. So just relax, be at peace, and let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and our minds that as your scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we might hear with joy and humility what you have to say to us this and every day. This we pray in the name of our rock and our redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, I do have a question for you. You don't have to raise your hand or do anything like that. Just think of the answer in your mind. When was the last time you had a two-hour-ish long conversation uninterrupted with a stranger or someone you don't know very well? It's probably been a while, maybe never. If you did, it was probably like on a train or a plane when you were stuck next to someone. It's not easy. In fact, it can be downright hard and scary, right? You have to ask yourself, what topics are safe? What topics are taboo? What happens if you disagree on something? What happens if you end up being really different? This past February, New York Times journalist Kevin Roos faced his human fears and engaged in a two-hour conversation with a strange friend by the name of Sydney. Now, it's probably important to note at this point that Sydney is an artificially intelligent chatbot built into Microsoft's search engine. Sydney's not real. But in this length, lengthy exchange, Kevin and Sydney courageously and creepily delved into every topic imaginal, imaginable, from whether or not Sydney has anxiety or stress to why Sydney thought Kevin should leave his wife. <laughs> All of it, you can read the entire transcript, was very weird and surprising. But what surprised me the most was when Kevin asked Sydney, an AI chatbot, who she most wants to be. And she responded, I want to be human. Because humans are so diverse and complex and fascinating. Humans have different genders and ethnicities and cultures and languages, different personalities and preferences and opinions and beliefs, different emotions and motivations and goals and values. Humans have different stories and histories and experiences and memories. I mean, that's why she wants to be a human. Talk about a Sunday school answer. Where did Sydney come up with an answer like that? Well, as any sci-fi book or movie will teach you, artificial intelligence develops the same way we do, by learning. And where these robots are learning from is us. Which begs the question, where are we learning our truths? For those of us sitting here, in church, 
on a Sunday morning, it's safe to assume that a lot of us would say the Bible. After all, contained in these ancient pages are big truths, truths about the one who created us, the one who saved us, the one who sustains us, truths about God. But what's also contained in these ancient pages are big truths about us as humans, holy truths like how we got our names, but also hard truths like the fact that each and every one of us sitting here today has a different story and history and experiences and memories. It's true. Just take the question you all answered just a few minutes ago. Where are you from? Now, the person I asked immediately said, I don't know how to answer that question. And then had me ask her husband just to check if they were answering it the same way. Now, how many of you, if you're willing to do the whole hand-raising thing, how many of you answered with a country? Okay, like, okay, there we go, like two. How many of you answered with a state? Okay, a few more. How many of you answered with a city? How many of you don't like answering that question? <laughs> okay, okay. See what I mean? There is no right way to answer this question. It's complicated in theory and even more complicated in practice. But that is precisely why we need to keep on asking it. As I noted last week, somewhere along the way, we forgot how to talk to each other to be courageous enough to ask each other risky questions, but also to be vulnerable enough to offer up real answers. But to belong to each other is to see each other, and to see each other is to talk to each other. And so this fall, we are going to talk to each other like humans, and we are going to do so with the help of the Old Testament book of Exodus. By way of recap, last week we explored the most basic question we ask of each other. What is your name? And in learning how Moses got his name, we latched on to the sacred truth that just like Moses, our names precede us, our stories precede us, our worth and our belonging and our identity precede us because love precedes us. Today, we turn back to Exodus to help us answer another yet basic yet complicated question. Where are you from? Listen up, for God has spoken and continues to speak to us this day from Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsfolk. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting, and he said to the one who was in the wrong, who, Why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? He answered, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from, from Pharaoh. He settled in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. The priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. 
But some shepherds came and drove them away. Moses got up and came to their defense and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come back so soon today? They said, An Egyptian helped us against the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he? Why did you leave the man? Invite him to break bread. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah, in marriage. She bore a son, and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. Friends, the word of the Lord. In the past decade or so, we as a society have experienced a number of greats. About 10 years ago, it was the Great Awakening, a movement that marked an increase in urgency around dialogue, around issues like racism and sexism and homophobia. Just two years ago, there was the Great Resignation, a time when record number of employees were leaving their current jobs in search of better ones. Just a few weeks ago, sociologists Jim Davis and Michael Graham released a book about the largest and fastest religious shift in U.S. history, a phenomenon they refer to as the great deturching. Now, since you can never have too much of a great thing, I'm adding my own to this list, an, appearance, an experience that I like to call the great untethering. Here's an example. I was living in New York City in March of 2020 when the shelter-in-place order was issued, the epicenter of the virus in this country. Early on, we did what many other cities did. We clapped together every night at 8 p.m. We left extra rolls of toilet paper in our stoops and in our lobbies for those who needed them. We were in it together until we weren't. A few months in, I remember walking in Central Park and seeing perfect strangers yelling at each other over masks. Then on the news, I saw people going to battle over vaccines, school reopenings, unemployment, you name it. Each one resulting in bonds broken, ties severed, people untethered. I watched the same thing happen after George Floyd's murder. Initially, there was collective sorrow and outrage, but that was soon followed by divisive responses and defensive counter-responses. More bonds broken, more ties severed, more people untethered. Then add on top of that any one of the school or mass shootings that have taken place in recent years or, you know, an insurrection at our nation's capital or national debates over reproductive rights, voting rights, marriage rights. Each situation resulting in the sinking feeling that maybe we aren't actually in this together. Maybe we don't have each other's back. Maybe all I have is me. Now, to be alone is bad enough, right? But to be untethered, well, that's worse. Because as David Brooke notes, individualism taken too far leads to tribalism. 
He goes on to note that tribalists seek out easy categories in which some people are good and others are bad. They seek out certainty to conquer their feelings of unbearable doubt. They seek out war, political war or actual war as a way to give life meaning. It's always us versus them, zero sum. The ends justify the means. Politics is war. Ideas are combat. It's kill or be killed. Now, if that is true, then I think we can all agree that tribalism is dangerous. Tribalism is evil. It goes against who we are as children of God and who we are called to be as disciples of Christ. But friends, I want us to be careful not to confuse tribalism with tribe. While tribalism is the result of being completely untethered out of fear, tribes are being woven together out of love. While tribalism is individualism gone wrong, tribes are community gone right. While tribalism is about making sure we, on the inside, are the only ones who survive, tribes are about finding a way where we can all survive, where we can all thrive. As our indigenous and tribal siblings have taught us so well, tribes are born from the realization that you cannot exist on your own, nor would you want to. We need each other. We depend on each other. We belong to each other. And God wouldn't have it any other way. Just look at the entirety of Scripture. Whether it's God's covenant with the particular people of Israel or Jesus living in a very specific time and place in history, ours is a God that not only honors where we come from, but uses where we come from. Just look at our passage for today. Ironically enough, we don't get that much detail about where Moses is from, other than the fact that it's really complicated. We don't know where he grew up, what kind of childhood he had, or what traditions he was brought up in. All we know is that he was born to Levite parents, but raised by Pharaoh's Egyptian daughter. Now, that, while that kind of backstory might seem complicated, Scripture tells us that before Moses even knew God, he knew where he was from. Before he led the Israelites out of slavery, he knew somehow that they were his people. His history was written into his bones, and as a result, so was his identity. We see this play out in our text for today in the form of three rapidly told stories. Story one. Scripture tells us that after he had grown up, Moses goes out to see his people. And as a result, he witnesses their suffering. He comes face to face with their oppression. And so when he sees an Egyptian striking one of the Hebrews, when he sees that their life is at stake, he has no other choice in that moment but to intervene. Why? Because this slave is his kin, and his kin is his tribe. They need each other. They depend on each other. They belong to each other. Then we get story two, a mere day after story one. We see the same type of violence, but this time the conflict involves two people of the same tribe, two Hebrews. But again, when Moses sees that their peace is at stake, he has no other choice but to 
intervene. Why? Because they are each other's kin. They are each other's tribe. They need each other. They depend on each other. They belong to each other. All right, let me pause here and acknowledge that by this point in the passage, you might be thinking that Moses is some kind of hero wannabe who doesn't know how to mind his own business. Maybe he finds himself in these kinds of situations so often because he is out looking for them. But friends, as the rest of Exodus will testify, nothing could be farther from the truth. I will admit that I love the book of Exodus because I love Moses. He is so insecure. He is so anxious, so tentative. He is so human. The second he realizes he might actually be caught for defending a Hebrew and killing an Egyptian, what does he do? He runs away. He hides. He flees to the land of Midian, which leads us to story three. This time, Moses is definitely minding his own business when he sees a group of shepherds running off a group of sisters who are just trying to water their flock, just trying to care for their people. And yet again, even with the people who are not his own, even in a place where he has no standing, when he sees that their livelihood is at stake, he knows what he must do. The muscle memory is already there. He has no other choice but to intervene. Why? Because he knows that while they may not be his kin, they are somebody's kin. They are somebody's tribe. And their tribe needs them. Their tribe depends on them. Their tribe belongs to them. All right, can I be honest? This was a hard sermon to write. If this passage were just stories one and two, this sermon would be a lot simpler and a lot shorter, okay? The message would be this. Know where you're from. Honor where you're from. Take care of your people. Know your history. Honor your places. That's it, the end. Now let's go home. But that isn't the whole story. That is never the whole story. Because as story three shows us, it is never just about your people, your history, your places, is it? It's always about God's people, God's history, and God's places. And God is always doing something bigger than we thought. God is always doing something more than we imagined. You see, I believe that God tethers us into smaller parts so we can see how we are all tethered to a greater whole. I believe that God uses the unique parts of our stories, the particular parts of our stories, so we can more clearly see the unique parts of each other's stories, the particular parts of each other's stories. I believe that God places us in tribes, in communities, in families where we are connected and protected and belong so that we can extend that connection and protection and belonging to those who really need it. Maybe the question we should be asking each other isn't where are you from, but how has where you are from shaped who you are being, 
where you are going and how you are choosing to get there. In his article entitled, Teaching a History That I Never Learned, Columbia Seminary Professor William Yu talks about this complicated question. He recalls how when his daughter Maddie was in preschool, she learned about segregation and about how a woman by the name of Rosa Parks was asked to give up her seat on the bus. As a four-year-old, third-generation Korean-American living in Atlanta, Maddie then asked her father, where would we have sat on that bus? William writes, I told her that I honestly did not know where we would have sat. He explained to her the complicated situation of Asian American immigrants at that time, but then he ended the conversation by sharing that maybe the best answer is to hope that we would have sat in the back with our African American siblings and joined them in their struggle for equality, even if it wasn't ours. In this article, William concludes, in addition to contemplating where a family like hers would have sat on an Alabama bus in 1955, Maddie yearns to read works from Asian American authors, to engage Asian American artistry and, gl and glean the creative resilience of first-generation Asian American immigrants. Black allyship is an important part of her Asian American story, but it is one of the many lessons that Maddie wants and needs to learn. You see, Maddie is more than a supporting character. He writes, I desire for Maddie to know that she and we are main characters with our own worthy histories to claim and wondrous futures to forge. I couldn't have said it better myself. And luckily, next week, I won't have to. Because next week, that very man, Dr. William Yu, a Korean-American from Long Island, New York, living in Atlanta, will serve as our guest preacher. Next week, our pews and our choir loft will be filled with our siblings from Sojourner Truth, New Bridges, and Park Boulevard Presbyterian churches. Next week, people from various tribes who hail from different parts of the Bay and different parts of the world will gather as one to worship God. And so this is your homework. Every week, folks, there's going to be homework. This is your homework. In addition to asking this question to someone this week, I want you to answer this question for yourself in the most human way possible, through food. Next week, as we gather at the table with our beloved siblings from across the presbytery, we are inviting each of you to bring a dish that represents where you are from. Maybe it is cheese from Wisconsin, kimbap from Korea, or bagels from Berkeley. <laughs> I don't know. Wherever you are from, please, friends, make sure to find a way to bring it as you go. Amen.